Welcome to Real Talk. I am Anne. I am very excited about our guest today. Denise Bard has an incredible story of resilience, hope, and giving back to the nonprofit that changed her life. Our entire reason for doing Real Talk is to make a difference in people's lives, to take life's traumas, losses, hurts, and pains, and to go through life's journey together. Life is hard, and we always try to find ways to make a difference and to help make lives better. Tina is not here today, but Denise, I am so glad to have you. I am so excited to be here. You know, one of the reasons I thought you were a perfect fit for our show was your mission and your story. You have taken what happened and turned it into something powerful. You are making a difference, and I can't wait to bring your story to our listeners. Denise, you spend your life speaking and fundraising for a group home that made a profound impact on your life. Can you take us back to the beginning of your story and share how this organization played such a pivotal role? I mean, where does your story begin? Oh, well, at birth. <laughs> okay. I- am um I'm a product of two drug addicted teens and I was brought into I hate to say raised because I think and you'll understand in my story that other people raised me in a way that I'll explain later um but I was in my maternal side so my mother's side um she was addicted to cocaine so obviously that's a really heavy drug to um have an addiction to and I spent my childhood up until about, well, I think all the way into high school, back and forth into kinship care. Okay. And, but um, anytime I was with my mom, um, there was a lot of uncertainty, you know, um, where are we staying? Where are we eating? Where I, I've had people tell me later in life how when they saw me, I was dirty, like never diapers changed. I mean, it, it was pretty bad. Um one of the things that I do share vulnerability wise is that her drug addiction uh, had her take me to places that she should never have taken me. And it was, well, I guess a form of payment, if you want to allow her to get her highs. I think that's the hardest part of my past that, that I think a lot of people share a past like that, but nobody talks about it. So um, something that I do share now because I think it's important to tell people that they're not alone. I obviously face a lot of other abuse, physical abuse, neglect, um, uh, mental, I, everything. And I was t- four, 12. My mother got custody of me again, full custody. And I lived with her for a two years before I just, well, I just, couldn't do it anymore. And I did try to take my life. I, I took pills, crushed them in water, and I started to drink. But after that first sip, I stopped. And a lot of people will say, you know, oh, you know, were you scared to do it? No. To be honest with you, the reason why I stopped was that um, I knew that she would play victim. I knew that the family members would play the victim. And I would be oh. so angry because I'm the victim. Do you know what I mean? And, and right, I didn't right. want that. Um, but I told a friend at the bus stop that morning and I knew she would tell the school. And so, um, she did, they, she did. And school called me down and then they called the police and then they called her. And of course she came in acting like she's the victim. And I just told them, I said, you know, I'm not going home. 
I, I don't care where you take me, but I refuse to go there. So, you know, I'm either going to run or, you know, whatever it took. I just was not going back. Was and she still so, using it this time? Um, not illegal drugs. She had changed her into prescription drugs. So okay. she had gone through the program. That's how she got me back. Was she went through through number of drug rehabs, but at that point had shown the court that she was capable enough to um, be a parent, which, you know, it frustrates me to this day about that. But um, can I ask yeah, you so, a, a couple mm-hmm. more questions? Could, yeah. Did she use while she was pregnant with you? Well, um, the belief is yes. I have some, um, I guess some medical conditions that they, that, you know, there was not enough studies. I was born in 1975. So there wasn't a lot of studies about, you know, the, the, the consequences of taking the drugs. Now we know about, you know, alcoholics and, and whatnot. Um, but based upon the stories of the adults that knew the situation, um, her friends, there was definitely things taken. Now what that was, I don't know. Um, but definitely there was some usage. Yes. Wow. Yeah. 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 And you know, I, it, it sounds awful. And your, your story is the exact same story as my grandkids mm-hmm. who I adopted. I mean, it is my granddaughter, um, who is my daughter now, uh, yes. I adopted her, but she was, you know, all three of my kids, she, bio mom used while she was pregnant with them. Yes. But my daughter especially was affected with the same thing. She actually had bloody diapers and stuff because she was never changed. Bio mom went to um, drug house to drug house, lived in a meth house and went to the absolute worst places to get drugs uh, and would take her kids with her. Yes. Uh, And um, my daughter ended up being exposed to meth. She actually put her hand on it because they were making meth and put it in her mouth. And then it went into her system and she's had to have surgeries and stuff because of it. And she's got toxic brain because of it, which, you know, it's just, I just really feel for you because, you know, and you also are giving me a lot of hope Mm -hmm. because look at you, look what you're doing. And it just, you know, it gives it, just warms my heart to know because we're working so hard with my kids that my kids have a chance. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's an also another reason why I share. So, um, and, and I think that I was lucky enough to have the right people be put in my life, which it sounds like your grandkids or, or your children all have that now with you stepping in. Um, so going back to how I got to anchor house, cause this will kind of give you an idea of, um, the difference and the reason why I say that changed my life. So after I had a, a attempted and I went to school and all that, they took me to this shelter for runaway and abused uh, youth. It's at least that's how we called it the a group home for runaway and abused um, today. And it maybe perhaps had been this the whole time, but at that time in 1989, that's just how we looked at it. But it's a shelter for runaway, abused, and homeless youth in Trent, New Jersey, and that's where I'm from. And when I talk about my story, I say that I went in as being something, and I came out as being someone, because I had oh. always been 
the product of, you know, whatever, if she needed drugs, I was that. Uh, I was the thing that she would take anger out on. I was the thing that she would tell me she didn't want. She hated me. No one would want me. So it's always was, I was just something. Mm -hmm. And then going into Anchor House was life-changing. And it, a lot of people don't understand that. So I say, when I walk through the doors, it was the first time I felt safe. And that's a difficult thing to tell people for them to understand because it's a hard thing to put into words. And the best, you know, thing I could describe is it's it's like being terrified or afraid every single day and every single minute. Finally have a place where you didn't have to worry about the next minute. Man, I remember that breath. Like I remember just inhaling and just absolutely feeling that safety. And it was the first time. Um, and the first person I met was my caseworker, Michelle, who I am so fortunate to still have her in my life today, which kind of shocks me because of my craziness over the how many years I've known her. Um, but she has always been my by my side. Um, and she was the first person to give me a hug that I am telling you, no one else hugs like her. I hadn't ever experienced that, you know, she would give you these bear hugs. And I mean, like these hugs where when you are hugged and again, it was my first time, it just felt safe and it just felt where every fear just melted. And, you know, when you're talking from a kid and, and, you know, we've talked and have some experiences, there's something that a lot of people won't understand. So if you understand, you know it, you know what I mean? And so, um, yeah, trying to describe those things to people who may have not been um, in a relatable situation is difficult. But when you reflect back on it, and as I tell, like, I feel like I'm in that moment. I, I always talk about the moment, and you'll hear me talk about that. But those are those moments where it just never goes away. Like, right. and, and it's a feeling that stays with you. So it's not just, oh, that that moment. No, like, I encapsulated that moment. I took that moment with me through my entire life. Um, you know, I call those moments mile markers. And yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's like a time in your life where you just felt the tra- trajectory of your life going in a different way, like in that oh, very second. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I was learning things there. I say it's a lot of really new experiences. You know, as kids, we grow up with families. And I say we, I mean, I have my two children and you want them to just be kids. You want them to experience things just you know, in a safe setting and a an environment that there isn't walking on eggshells. And mm-hmm. so I got to experience so many things as a first and I was 14. And wow. so um, at that point, you know, th- they were really big milestones, mile markers, um, these 30 second moments. And so I've, it's, it's, you know, I brought them with me as I've grown through the years but it wasn't just, you know, for me there, I obviously um, had all these first, but there were things that I, I learned while I was there that have followed me and have been the reason I have been able to to break the cycle, create my own story instead of somebody else's story. 
Mm-hmm. And that was from my case manager, Michelle. There's three things that she always told me. And first of all was um, that what happened to me wasn't my fault. And here's the interesting thing about that. And I, I really want to point this out is that I grew up being told that no one would ever believe me. And if I said anything to anyone, they're going to think things about me. They're going to say things about me. And so as a kid, you want people to like you. And, you know, even still to this day, you want to be someone who is liked. You want to be the people pleaser. And so that completely silenced me. And even when I was given the opportunity while I was there to be able to share that, that fear was, was so much because I was so afraid of losing her because she was that first person to, you know, make me feel loved, make, you know, all, all the, the warming and fuzzy things. Um, and the people there, the volunteers, the, um, you know, the staff members, I was afraid if I said all those things that they wouldn't believe me and they would say something about me or they might be thinking things about me. And of course that was all not true, but I think when you grow up in an environment where that's drilled into you, it's, it's hard to, to not think that that is true. And especially at 14. And so um, that was the first thing that she had told me. And I'm going to be honest, I still work on that today. Um, I think there are moments continuing on today that I stop and I'm like, okay, that wasn't my fault. That wasn't my fault. Um, And then there's the second thing she always said, which was uh, things will always get harder before they could ever get better. And when I tell you, I used to get so mad at her and she'll still say it to this day. And I get so angry. But the truth is, that is true. Things always get harder before they can get better. True. Um, but the third thing, and this is the, the one thing that I think changed everything. The one thing I talk about in my keynote speeches is that she would always tell me to look around because there are so many people who do care about me. And who do want me to do well. The problem is that I was so focused on the abuse and everything in front of me, which I understand that 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 is a normal thing and most people would. Um, But the thing is, she wasn't asking me to change my perspective of it. She was telling me to shift my focus and find positive. Because for me, that was going to be my survival is finding those people in my life that would help me and and I learned so much from them into like simple moments. And so had she not said that, I think our story and would be completely different. I think I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I think, you know, there's so many ways that life could have gone wrong for me had I not had that in my life. So when I say that Anchor House is such a pivotal thing for not just me but kids like me, youth just like me, I mean, without that, life is just going to be different or could be different. I mean, chances are, at least in my personal um, story, it would have been. I want to go back for a second on your comment about it's not your fault. Um, yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Goodwill Hunting yes. with Robin Williams and Matt Damon? And that scene where Matt Damon is the abuse comes out. And yeah, I think he was saying, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And, is that the scene? And, 
and and Robin Williams is like in his face to the point where Matt Damon is sobbing and he's saying, you know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault over and over to the point where I'll tell you what, that scene, it makes me want to cry now. <laughs> and you're talking about being silenced. I mean, I understand being silenced and people writing your own story and telling you what the truth is when that's not the truth. And it causes such a crazy making that, you know, you don't even know what the truth is anymore. But what you do know is that it's not your fault, but you feel like for some reason, like there's this, it, it, there's gotta be some part of it that's your fault. Like you caused it somehow. And when you're young, you know, it, and to hear those words over and over again, like that, it impacted me. And I think it really changed me after I saw that scene. Yeah, that's definitely it. And I think that's the struggle still to this day is there had to be something I've done and I'm 48. And so when you think about that, I mean, when I was younger, I thought, oh, when I get to this age, I'm not going to think about anything from my past. But I think as we uh, go on in life, we we experience certain situations where that triggers it. And then you start to think about that again. Um, I think we do. And that's why, you know, I wanted to have this podcast because it doesn't silence us. And we can get our stories out there and we can tell them to the world if we want to. And nobody can say, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that is, that's absolutely the truth. And again, like there's something that is really freeing about that to be able to talk to people. I didn't start to really, I think when I really started to be able to speak about it openly was five years ago when I reconnected with Anchor House. Okay. Um, and so I, it's just what made you do that? What made you reconnect? Well, they have. So Anchor House is a nonprofit organization. And we, and I say we, there is an Anchor House uh, foundation separate in the 501c3. So they're separate um, nonprofits, but they, you know, the foundation does help a lot for Anchor House. So they, they have an annual ride. The foundation has an annual bike ride. Uh, they do, I think it's 500 miles. And they either start from um, northeast, you know, from the northeast down to Trenton, or they go from the south up to Trenton. And five years ago, they were going through the town that I lived in now, which was really kind of crazy. And, you know, what were the chances of them riding through? Um, mm -hmm. But I had my soccer coach who um, had a really big impact in my life, actually saved my life again. Um, she rides for them. And she had said that she was going on this ride because I followed her on Facebook. Um, we were, you know, connected through Facebook. Um, and I said, oh, where, where's Anchor House going this year? Because every year I did try to um, give back, you know, I donated as much as I could. And when she told me, I was like, you know what, you're going through my town. And so I showed up to their stop here in Winchester with signs that said, um, I said, thank you, room two, bed two, 1989. And that was, you know, the year I was in there. And so I think they were shocked because we I had a lot of people kind of make signs, you know, cheering them on. And that's usually what happens when they get close to New Jersey and home, they have family members do that. So it was kind of odd for them to have me just show up. 
But when I did and I got there, got to talking to everyone and they asked me to uh, speak to the bike riders. And I believe back then there was about 200 bike riders. Now, whether they were all there at that one moment or not, um, but I shared a little bit and it was the first time that I did that publicly. And so, and it's not that I didn't want to share my story. I was never asked. No one ever asked me, what's your story? And so they asked and I, I, you know, I told a little bit and then they invited me to the uh, 40th anniversary of them being open. So what were the odds again, the chances here I am during their 40th year ride. And then now we're going in, you know, at that moment was 40 years. And they asked me to speak at the anniversary dinner. And it just, it just kind of took off from there. And then I sat on, you know, wanting to do keynote speeches and motivational speeches and was encouraged by a lot of people. Um, But it all started there. It all started again, that here, you know, back in 1989, they gave me a bit of my voice, gave me the opportunity to speak to them. And now I'm, you know, 40 something and, (laughs) and I'm once again, you know, here's my voice and I can talk. Yeah, that's how I, I got reconnected. And I, I'm so honored that last December, I got voted in to be on their board. So now I'm part of the Anchor House board. So as I said, there's two sides. So the Anchor House side, which is the shelter and all programs, uh, I'm now a board member too. So it's really kind of neat how full circle everything went. And as I said, I, I went from something to coming out as someone after Anchor House. And it's just proved that they continue to make a difference no matter how far along, you know, you were in there. Are some of the same people that were there when you were in there, are they still involved? No, well, involved, yes. I am mainly probably uh, supportive involved, um, but a lot of them are not there anymore. I'm that old that they're not. Um, (laughs) But that year, that 40th anniversary union, uh, there was, there was someone, I don't know, he wasn't working there, but he came, he was, he was at the dinner and his name is Dave Brown. He was one of the counselors there. And I drove him nuts. I think all, all the kids used to like write notes because back then that's what we did. Wrote notes. Sure. There was no texting, no anything. Right. We'd write these silly, stupid notes back and forth. And he, you know, but that was kind of really fun to be able to see him at the anniversary dinner. Um, how many years ago, but the, there was an executive director that was at Anchor House when I was there, who I saw again at the anniversary dinner. And we just had a 45th anniversary dinner about two weeks ago, and she was there again. So not so much as they were working there, but they were definitely still involved in um, being support and cheerleaders and, and what have you. So that's that's been pretty interesting. Have you seen that lady that gave you that hug? I, well, I do. She doesn't. So she lives currently in North Carolina, but I stayed connected with her since I was 14. Obviously when I was still in school, it was a little difficult. Um, you know, the, the control of my mother and my grandmother was anybody that was helping me or, you know, anything important to me was pushed away, not allowed to come near me. It, it was very toxic. Um, but, um, you know, after graduation, she had lived in um, was Chicago and I went out to visit her. I mean, I love her to death. And so now I saw her a couple of years ago before COVID. She was 
vacationing with her husband and we went to, we went over, over to see her and I just love her hugs. I don't get them enough because we're not in person, but every morning I do text her good morning every morning. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, so she loves that, me it, after these years. <laughs> well, I mean, you obviously, and that connection is still there every day. Yeah, it is. And I, I she's probably, you know, people had asked me, what's her role? Like, what would you put her role as? And obviously, she is not old enough to be a mother to me because, you know, she was actually young when I was there. Um, so I say it's like the the older sister that takes care of you. Do you okay. know what I mean? At least that's yeah. in my, I didn't have that, but that's, you know, I've had friends who do that. And I'm like, you know, that's kind of how she is to me. She's, she's, you know, she's, I love her to death. There's not enough good things. And I know she's listening and she knows just how much I love her. <laughs> I, I want to go back for a minute to that first night in the group home when you first yeah. got there after that hug, you know, I, we often talk about on this podcast what it feels like to be in a house where the adults in the room are the ones who are supposed to be loving and protecting you, but they're actually the ones hurting you. Yes. So, I mean, this would have been your first night out of the, a situation like that. I mean, describe what it must have felt like being in a bed in a safe place for the first time. So... I always slept with a pillow over my head. I was, you know, a lot of people hide under the blankets, but I also had a pillow over my head. I couldn't, um, there was a lot of sexual abuse that I had grown up facing being right around that I didn't like sounds. Like I was always afraid of hearing sounds. I was always afraid of, you know, what would happen. So being able to lay in a bed and not, had that fear and need to cover my head was, um, it's hard to describe. I mean, that was a first time for me to be able to do that. And I think while I was there, to be honest with you, I probably slept the best that I had ever slept before. Mm. I find so, it interesting that you trusted them that much Yeah, right off the get-go. Yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, maybe it's a sixth sense. I don't know. Yeah, but it was, it was like, I just, re I remember that day. And I think most of us who have gone through there, regardless of age, I think we all remember our first moment walking through the door. And I think it's that um, right off the bat, they just, you know, they come to you and they want to know about you. They want to listen to you. And when you're growing up and you don't have that, there's something that kind of puts you at ease. And so, and I know that there are times where people that you want to trust are the ones, as you said before, the ones that hurt you, but this was different. This was you knew. just completely, yeah. Like there was that, um, <laughs> so it's like a family. And obviously the program has grown so much since I was there. Um, you know, the, when I, when I was in there and back in 89, uh, the the length of time would be 30 days. The aging is oh. like normal of 18. And you, you know, some of the kids that came in were um, foster kids. And of course, once they age it out, um, back there, was, there was limited uh, options. There were limited things. But I'm so happy that they have grown so much that they have programs for these kids okay. and youth. And so... 
they're not just left there on the doorstep or, you know, I know my, one of my roommates was turning 18 and, you know, the, the state gives you a couple bucks, then it's like, here you go, right, you know, good right. luck. Um, and now there's, you're able to provide that. Yeah, I, I do want to talk more about that uh, coming up in a little bit, but I want to get yeah. back to the overcoming of the childhood trauma, you know, because we talk a lot about that on this yeah. podcast. And, you know, I endured, I endured a lot from my biological family and adopted mom. And I had a, my dad died when I was 11. And I talk about that quite a bit on here. But one thing I understand is childhood trauma, but more importantly, the overcoming part of it. Trust me, I had years where I was self-destructive and made a lot of bad choices. Unfortunately, I did make a lot of bad choices, but, um, you know, it's been a bumpy road. And my entire purpose in life now is to help others overcome their trauma. So can you talk more about your resiliency and helping others carve their new path of hope? So things that help me be resilient is from learning how to shift that focus. I guess where I found resiliency was by the people that came into my life. Okay. Um, I found that obviously Anchor House was a was beginning of finding that resiliency. The, the mission is that we are um, the anchor in the storm. So I learned that and my resiliency comes from those moments I received by teachers um, because obviously as a child, my only source of safety was school. And I had these teachers, you know, mm. in my life and those little moments that they gave me really are the reason why I have been able to overcome. Um, I always say still overcoming because I think we have work to do in, t- in our, sure. our entire lives. But what I got from each of those innocent moments was something that helped me face adversity. And so um, I'll explain that. So I had, um, as I said, you know, my mother would blame me for a lot of things. Um, I faced a lot of, you know, physical abuse and obviously the sexual abuse, but that's, that's hard to, you know, go by. But when I went back to her when I was 12, you know, I still faced that your, not worthy. You don't matter. I hate you. No one wants you, you know, all those things. So you didn't feel that love. You didn't feel that, um, part of you that you need in order to grow. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was these moments I got from a from teachers. So I'm going to give you three examples because, and I say this with all honesty, that this continues to help me. These moments continue to help me, to make me you know, a better person, a, a wife, a mom. Um, these are the reason why I could look out my window and look at my house and know, God, I'm here because of. And right. so my, aside from my caseworker, who, again, the the pure unconditional love has has driven me beyond some of the, the darkest days. Um, I had an eighth grade teacher she was my favorite teacher, Miss Camiotti. And she wasn't my favorite teacher because of her subject, because I sucked at math and she was a math <laughs> teacher. <laughs> but she on a, she actually worked or volunteered at Anchor House. And while I was there, um, 
she helped with transportation because a lot of the kids that were there were coming from different areas and different school districts. So that was a challenge to get kids to their schools. And so for me and the reason why, or for me and the, the fact that she was volunteer there, it kind of made it easy. I would get my, you know, rides back and forth. And I wish, I wish this is one of the things that like, I have that regret. I wish that I felt comfortable enough to tell her what was going on. And I wish I remembered those trips mm-hmm. back and forth, but I don't. But the one thing that stands out in my mind and has helped me is there was a day that uh, someone came in to see her. And I was at my locker, which was right across the hall from her classroom. And I was, you know, digging out books. And I remember her calling me over. I had long curly hair. I don't have long hair anymore. But I had long curly hair. And I remember her pushing my hair off my shoulders and then her placing her hands on my shoulders and introducing me to him as this is my Denise. Those simple words. Again, this goes back to that 30 second moment. So innocent, didn't mean anything to her, but, and it was, you know, it's just that simpleness. But for me, it meant so much. It was the first time that I heard those words and that I felt like I could actually be wanted by someone. Cause I had been told my entire life that no one would want you. And now I have this person who said these words to me that I was like, holy crap, you know? Um, and I learned in that moment what it felt like to feel wanted, to be someone's. And I know, again, it was an innocent moment. It, it wasn't what she meant, but it's what she said. And I will say this. I heard this one time. Somebody said, people hear what they need to hear in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I expand that to say that, um, and I'll use kids, kids will hear what they need to hear in that moment, and they will feel what they need to feel in that moment. We're going to end part one right here. I apologize because I know she just finished the first of three 30-second moments that really changed her life, but there's two more, and there's a lot more even after that. So you need to stay tuned and spread the word, subscribe, let people know about our podcast, Uh, follow us. Go on Facebook, uh, Real Talk with Tina and Ann, and follow our podcast because this is some really good stuff. And it's stuff that a lot of people are not talking about. And we want people to know about Anchor House in New Jersey. So we want everybody to uh, get a lot out of this podcast. We really appreciate you. We love you and thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.